0: Our scripture reading today is from Romans 8, 18 uh, through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God.
1: Thank you, Margaret. Well, I don't know if you heard, but uh, there's an eclipse tomorrow. Um, it's coming up. If you've come to school, they perfectly put the uh, date of coming back to school on the eclipse, right? They, they timed that really well. So all, everybody's kind of getting out of town. If you've driven in, I'm sure you've seen the signs. If you haven't seen enough of the signs... On the road, T-dots put up, you know, on on the uh, electronic boards. Watch out, traffic, eclipse. It's like, okay, you know. uh, I even noticed in the grocery store all the funny kind of um, uh, pun type things. My my wife pointed some of these out. I actually didn't catch them. She helped me see them. Uh, Moon pies are on sale. Uh, If you want moon pies for the eclipse, uh, as well as many other assorted things with the word moon, eclipse, or sun, or anything in them. But uh, I'm sure they're BOGO or whatever you want. But it's interesting to me, uh, if you look at how many people are coming to our city right now for that, uh, everybody's writing about it, making fun of it, you know, talking about it. But there's a longing to see some massive event, right? Uh, this is a huge deal. Uh, it comes around once in however many years, some of you know exactly, probably. Uh, and so everyone is longing to g- get a, a glimpse of it. Everybody's coming up from other cities or coming down and finding that one band, you know, that's like across the country where they can see it. And hotels are all booked. And people are longing, they're, they're wanting to see something huge. And, and yet here's, it's funny, they're not only longing for it, but they're something bigger and better. But they're hoping to get a glimpse of it so they can kind of stay in the moment. There have been articles written that, you know, people are starting to spin out. So, like, because of the eclipse, they're starting to spin out. and Maybe all these other events are going to happen. There was an article in uh, USA Today that said, as citizen scientists collectively nerd out ahead of Monday's total solar eclipse, rogue observers of the spooky and weird are generating theories that the celestial event could usher in aliens, boost sightings of interdimensional creatures, and perhaps even plunge us towards world destruction. And so they kind of go on to list like all these things. The lizard man is coming, literally, there's like a page on the lizard man coming back. And people are wanting this, like the longing for something big and other people are kind of hoping for even more. How can we make this event last? How can we do this? And you come to, you know, I don't know if you're here this morning in Christianity, maybe your parents drug you to church this morning. Maybe you're walking in the doors because you heard about in town. Maybe you're a friend of someone here. Maybe you're, you've, you would call yourself a Christian. You're wrestling with just the ongoing nature of life. How in the world, honestly, does Christianity in this event actually encourage you to keep going? Because it would be easy for us to talk about Christianity and talk about Jesus and the Bible and all of these things, and yet we have these longings. How are they met? How do we know that there's something connective at the end? How do we we know that there's something bigger and better than what we're dealing with now? Because, you know, the verse starts out and it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. But I don't know about you, but the first question I would ask if I was in your seat was to say, do I really think that? Do I really think that there's something bigger and better and that it lasts? That it's not just a passing eclipse of glory. Maybe a momentary release out of our suffering so that we go back in. Most of us probably live in our suffering and when he says suffering, he doesn't just mean an event, he means just the day-to-day futility of feeling like we just can't make it. That we deal with that. Is there something more? And not only is there something more, but does it last? Does it hold? You know, the whole theme of the book of of Romans is this theological treatise that Paul is writing to encourage persecuted Christians, to tell them they need help. And when they get to chapter eight, it is considered the gem of gems in Romans. And the reason it is is because the theme of Romans eight within that big book, Paul wrote, is on assurance. Can we have assurance that there really is something that will be done with our suffering and that our glory is real, that it will last, that we're not just kind of hoping for something and it'll just be okay. Maybe I'll placate our suffering for now. How do we enter into it with joy and life? Because that's what it's meaning to tell us. That's what the Christian life is. How do we have a life that sings, that rejoices, where you feel even in your suffering, not that you don't weep, but you still have joy? Joy is different from happiness. How does that last? Driving us to something that is coming, something that is bigger and better, and that will never fade away. The Bible says, and He does so by answering a couple of questions. He says, first, there's a comparison to glory. First, we need to know there's a comparison. Second, we need to know there's there's a a, a longing for glory. That longing actually meets that is going to answer the question, how are we going to reach it? And finally, that there's a hope of glory. So first, there's a comparison, and he says it right off the bat, bat in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he says that, and, and right away, he's addressing our limitations. Again, it's, he's not just saying suffering like in a huge event or something catastrophic that happens. He's saying the everyday nature of the way you feel you're suffering, the way you just you, you just feel like you're trudging through. You can't make it. And that is ongoing. It is our limitations. It's hitting that limitations. A Greek here that Paul is using is of comparing. He's wanting us to actually understand there's a scale. He's saying there's a comparison between suffering and Glory. And what he's trying to get us to see is that glory way outweighs our suffering. But oftentimes, we feel like they're like this, or maybe more like our suffering way outweighs, and we have this little glimmer of hope. How do we begin to learn the scales tip? Most of our culture, and oftentimes lives in a, an order of, of nihilism, which is some sort of a nothingness, that, that maybe the good and, and, and bad are there and on an equal playing field. Some of us live this way practically, even when we say we may follow Jesus and think about passages like this in the Bible, because we tend to look at our day of, "Man, I had this really bad day today, but tomorrow's going to be a good," And we kind of hope things kind of weigh each other out. But what happens if we start living that way and we start like taking that in As we begin to, we're, we're actually losing the grasp of the, even the comparison philosophically, even if you're here and you wouldn't be a Christian and you say, I'm kind of diving back into this, of the comparison between good and evil. We're starting to put good and evil on some sort of a, an equal scale playing field and their weight seems to have the same And when we do that, which oftentimes, if we have no greater hope, we do that, it it can throw things out of whack. It causes us to actually ask the question, which we see in our culture of, how do we really get upset when we're wronged against? If evil is the same as good, it weighs the same, C.S. Lewis says, how do we know the difference C.S. Lewis actually uses the illustration, if somebody cuts in front of you in a line and evil is the same weight as good, then why should you get upset? What's the deal with that? How do you get get upset with injustices in the world? How How do we make sense of things if evil is on the same playing field as good? How do we make sense of things in Charlottesville and in Barcelona? What do you do with that? The Bible says, no, we need to embrace and actually see our suffering as a reality, but know that this is, that the good is way better. Even philosophically, you, can, you must say there must be something better. Evil must not exist. There is injustice that needs to be dealt with. But why? Because there's something coming, a glory, that is to make all things new. Not just glory, and even the word for glory, by the way, in Hebrew and Greek means heavy actually means weighty it doesn't blow away it holds it fixed it's something that we can look forward to with 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 joy because it is a comparison that is totally unbalancing the scales in other words paul is saying we have to understand that if we really want our suffering to be dealt with there must be something bigger and better than 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 our sufferings now. It must be greater, even if you're here and you would entertain the question, is Christianity real? Christianity is saying you must understand that there is a greater good, and not just goodness, but a greater good that will come and handle all the evil in order that we can see that it outweighs it. What we've done with some of this is also make it kind of religious for us. There have been a lot of articles talking about suffering Christians And especially America, 21st century. And how do we make connection with that? One article in The Atlantic said, the evangelical was called the evangelical persecution complex. Listen to this. The problem is that for most of U.S. history, Christians haven't been persecuted, at least not in comparison to early believers or even what Christians in places like Iraq face today. So the question for American Christians is, what to make of the Bible's warning that we will be persecuted? For many evangelicals, the lack of very public and dramatic persecution could be interpreted as a sign that they just aren't faithful enough. If they were persecuted, they could be confident they are saved. This creates an incentive to interpret personal experiences and news events as signs of oppression, which are ostensibly validations of our commitment to Christ. The danger of this view is that believers can come to see victimhood as an essential part of their identity. Do you see what, I don't know the background on this person, but what a great commentary on what we can religiously do with suffering. And yet what the Bible is talking about is our suffering is never detached from someone else. It's actually saying that the comparison and the weight is not in our glory, it's in someone else's glory. It's saying that the attachment to our suffering has to be in union to Jesus. We've been talking in Romans the last two weeks, and now today, of what, it, what does it mean for us to be in Christ, to be in Him? It means that we're so united with Him, so close to Him, that every part of his suffering must be ours in order that every part of his glory must be ours, to the degree that Jesus receives suffering is not a Christian's just running into, it's our calling, because it's connected to someone greater. If Jesus is that weighty in his glory, we must see his suffering as necessary for us. In other words, think of it this way. What is the greatest thing when you're going through suffering? Is it for somebody to tell you you're you're gonna be okay? Is it for somebody to actually just take away the pain, only for it to come back? What is one of the greatest, most powerful ways to deal with suffering is when someone empathizes with you. It's when somebody sits down with you and actually identifies your suffering, your pain, and you recognize they're not just talking around it. They're actually, they've actually walked through the door and are in the room of suffering with you. Then you know your suffering's actually being dealt with. And what happens to the suffering when it does? Light starts filling that dark room. In fact, theologians talk about this first verse as glory and hope growing on the backdrop of a black screen. It's weighty. That is exactly what it means to be in Jesus. It is that Jesus is so identified with your sufferings, so handled them in empathy and identifying. It says so much so that he's been tempted in every way as you and I are and yet without sin so that your sufferings can be met and they can actually in no way be in comparison to the glory that he has secured for us. It has to be that. There has to be a comparison. But Paul didn't stop there. He says, let's keep going. Let's keep going here. He says, not only the comparison of glory, but he says, we have a longing of glory, a longing that is to be met with. And there are two illustrations of this. And this is where he spends most of his time. He starts by saying, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of sons of God. How interesting. The creation groans, he says. He's saying that the creation around us that everything around us an eager expectation a longing. Here's what here's what here's what that Greek word means eager longing. It's like it's like you're in the back and you're trying to see something that's really fun and cool up front and you're at maybe a concert or maybe you're somewhere and you really want to see it's a, it's it's actually the word craning of the neck standing on the tiptoe waiting to see it's anticipation that creation itself is personified here as someone who's in in the back of the crowd, trying to see the glory of what's to come. And creation is saying that all around us. It says here that creation was subjected in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, creation is on tiptoe waiting because long ago, many, many, many pages back in the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship to God didn't just have to do with the relationship to just people. It had to do with everything. It was the relationship that creation had with with man and God. That creation was connected to man in that relationship to God. So when sin entered the picture, and man fell and walked away from God, creation came with him. It was almost like this, it was like, and I'm from this kind of family, maybe you are. It's almost like if you're a child of divorce, you may not have been the one who had gone through the divorce itself as Adam and Eve did, but you feel all the things that happened from that divorce. And you continue to, as I have. That's exactly what it means. It's a feeling of what it's like. Creation is like, I was subjected to this, not willingly. It was not on my participation, but it, it was because of that fall God subjected us to it because of your relationship to him. It's even more interesting. I don't know if you ever have read the prophets before. The Old Testament prophets do this. They actually start, they were kind of like lawyers. It was not a really, no offense lawyers in here. If you were a lawyer in the Bible, you were not liked. It was a little different because you got stoned a lot. You got beaten up. You got cast out. You were not liked in a way that maybe you might be liked today. Because these lawyers, these prophets would come and say, people of God, this is how you've fallen away from God. And what they would do is they'd take the people of God, whether it's in in all those prophets. I'm trying to set up a framework. So if you want to read the prophets, you'll see this. The prophets walk in and they say, people of God, you've walked away from God. You are sinning, you're moving away from him. And I'm going to take a, you know how I know this? I'm going to set up my first witness. You know what the first witness is in every prophet? The books is creation it actually says that creation cries out and agrees that man has sinned. That creation says, you and I have turned away from God. It actually is the first witness every single time. It says that creation itself, when it says not just subjected to futility, that word futility is frustrated. The creation is frustrated with us because futility is a word that, that connects to Ecclesiastes and talks about beauty that creation is always wanting to be beautiful, but it's always subject to what it says decay, this cycle over and over and over of decay. Look, we're we're situated as a church um, between a lot of different industries here. One of those is the medical industry. There are hospitals, many of you in this room, tons of you in this room are in the medical profession, whether it's uh, research or nursing or whatever it may be, a lot of people in here. But don't you see this? You know those days when you go to your job and you see that futility, that cycle of futility, that every day you go back, there are sick people. Every day you go back, there are people that some get better, some don't. Every day you go back, it happens again and again. And isn't there a longing in our bodies, in creation, for some sort of broken chain there, that that cycle stops? That's the groaning. It's saying that we're groaning. And then not only that, think about this other. It, it, even if you're not here, and you're maybe of a construction industry. Think of that. Look at all the cranes that are everywhere, right? Think about how many things are being torn down or renovated or being built back up. And if you're here in the construction industry or engineering of any type, you know that even though things are being built back up, everything, once it gets finished, it starts decaying. We're building on top of decay, and then we'll build on top of decay again. It's this constant cycle. Even in our positions, even in our vocations, we see it. We have to go back over and over and fight against it and feel the groaning. And you know what Paul's saying? Feel the groaning. Embrace the groaning embrace that cycle because it's it's showing you it's the longing for something more it's the longing that one day we won't have to have hospitals one day we won't have to have new buildings over and over one day the way we even handle ourselves what we see in us it will be all different but for now, know that longing is pointing you beyond yourself. Cast your eyes away from the cycle because it says that cycle will be broken. You know, they're even, they're talking about uh, Kickstarter since movies are not really super original these days. They're doing, you know, twos and threes of everything, right? So a lot of these movies that were done like 10 years ago, they're like, let's, let's do it again, same movie. And we'll just do it, you know, two, and then we'll do it 10 years from now, three, you know. Well, Avatar, uh, when Avatar came out years ago, they're, started, they're in production of making Avatar 2, which I'm sure many of you are on pins and needles for. And Avatar 1 came out, and it was actually very fascinating on the social media world because when it first came out, all these things about the connection of that Avatar world and depression started setting in. So people were writing about, I've seen this Avatar movie, why can't my life look more like this? literally a longing for heaven. And here's an interesting article written in the New York Times connecting heaven and nature. Listen to this. This is fascinating. The question is whether nature actually deserves a religious response. Traditional theism has to wrestle with the problem of evil. If God is good, why does he allow suffering and death? But nature is suffering and death. Its harmonies require violence. Its circle of life is really a cycle of mortality. And... The human societies that hew closest to the natural order aren't the shining Edens of James Cameron's fond imaginings. They're places where existence tends to be nasty, brutish, and short. Religion exists in part precisely because humans aren't at home in these cruel rhythms. We stand half inside the natural world and half outside it. We're beasts with self-consciousness. Predators with ethics. Moral creatures who yearn for immortality. Now listen to this from the New York Times. This is an aggrandized position. And if there's no escape upward or no God to take on flesh and come among us as the Christian story has it, it's a deeply tragic one. Do you hear that? That unless, and this is what, there's a word in here that, that as Margaret read it and I thought, wow. Stuck out to me again. It's the birth pains, that there's something happening, that it's waiting, that as it's waiting, there's a waiting there for someone to come, someone who's gonna radically change things. In fact, what it means when it says that, <clears throat> that the creation, in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. The word childbirth is actually saying in an old Jewish messianic understanding that the Messiah would come. That that word childbirth is saying they're longing for someone to reverse this, to reverse the curse, to come and handle it, to take care of it. It was an apocalyptic view that the Messiah would come and change it all. And then in Mark 16, listen to this. Mark chapter 16, a narrative talking about Jesus. Jesus says this. He says in verse 15, And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Why in the world would Jesus say that? Why do you think on our sign out front when you walk in it says, to follow Jesus in his mission of loving people? We don't stop, period. Places and things to life. Because the mission of the gospel, the good news, that proclamation, that's what what the word gospel means. It's a proclaiming of an event. You want to know an event like the eclipse that has happened and yet has not stopped? It is Jesus coming. It is the word made flesh. It is Jesus coming in flesh to address the corrosion and destruction of creation. And we are a part of that. These groanings, these pains are for us to desire for that, for change. Feel the groaning. Embrace it. The Bible, Romans here, Paul, who wrote this, is saying to you, embrace that longing. It is a real thing. Even if you're here and you're saying, I don't know. I know I feel longing. I know I see sin. I know I see it in my job. I know I see it in my family, in myself. Embrace it, because what it's saying to you is there's something bigger and better, and it took on flesh. This is why he finishes this, not with creation, but in verse 23, he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. There, there's a thing that theologians have said for ages. Now, some of you may have heard this before. This has really encouraged me. Maybe it's because I'm a nerd, but they said that that we live in a tension called the already and not yet. And if you get this for a moment, go with me for a second. This will so help you grasp that tension that we already have the benefits of Jesus, what he's done. He sits right now next to God and he speaks our name to him. He takes our, our prayer, the Holy Spirit takes our prayers to him. We already have all that. And yet, we're not yet there because we see this groaning and pains. We live in a tension between that, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and we're longing for him to come again and make it all right. And think about this his first coming has already been set in history and time. Nobody knows when his second coming is, but what we do know is that time is doing this, it's growing shorter and shorter, and shorter, and if Jesus, if God said, ages ago, even in the prophets, when they said, the witness of creation is calling out to you, but there's someone who's going to come and deal with this, Jesus came the first time, if he said, I'm coming again, don't you think he will? Don't you think he will again? He'll come again for us, because we are growing, groaning, and we are longing, and it says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and here is the Point, if you really want to know your deepest, biggest resource from this whole thing, take away one thing from this. Do you know what connects the already and the not yet? It is the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word Holy Spirit, these the, the, words here, the first fruits of the Spirit, the person. Even if you don't understand the Trinity, even if you're here asking those questions, just go with me for a second. What God is saying is he's saying he himself is the first fruit, the guarantee. He's using what's called real estate language. Many of you in here are a part of that. See, back in this time, what they would do for real estate was they'd dig up a big handful of dirt, they'd put it in a bag, and they'd say, here's your guarantee, your inheritance of what you're gonna you're gonna own. The purchase isn't finished yet, but you have a bag of dirt saying, this is your land. This is what you're gonna own in the future. That's how they did real estate. Paul is saying... The Holy Spirit is our guarantee, our deposit, our inheritance. It has been purchased. And what carries us from that already to the the not yet, what closes that, what carries us through in that tension in between isn't that you go out and do it, go have a great day. It's that you have the deposit of God himself. The Holy Spirit carries you to what? is coming so that you can experience it on a greater joy. You can experience joy. This is what brought C.S. Lewis to that, to Christianity. This is what brought him to that is when he experienced joy that was in it. It was when he experienced it, he longed for that. Just like you and I go to the beach or go to a movie or read a book and you never want it to end. There's joy that's put into that and yet it finishes Paul is saying is that guarantee, that hope that you have, you can put your joy in it no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the suffering because that deposit outweighs anything that you're gonna experience here. It is the resource you go back to. It is the God who is with you from the not yet to the already and everything in between because he says this here at the end. He says, there's a hope of glory You get a taste of this in a minute. This table right here is actually a physical reminder that you get to actually experience the hope of glory. You get to taste bread and wine. God uses temporal things to remind us and connect us to the finite and infinite. And you know what he does with this? You know what makes this effective? It's not that you come up, and I want to encourage you and instruct you. It's not coming up and just grabbing a cup and some bread and hoping that you think enough about Jesus. You know what's actually happening? The Spirit is actually doing a work in you. That when you take this wine and bread, God actually says, you're empathizing with me. You're part of my family. And my Holy Spirit is going to continue to feed you until the day when this is a long table and there is a spread on it and every single one of us can sit underneath it and not just come and go. We will come and sit and stay because the Lord of heaven sits awaiting for the day when he returns and we will be with him in glory. It will be magnificent and we will rejoice in him. So with that, let's stand together and let's read our common confession. A prayer for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. Almighty God, you have given your only son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive, thankfully, the fruits of his redeeming work, and to follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Please be seated. Know that this table is for those who trust in Jesus. As he set this, it's not CPC town's table. It's not my table. It's Jesus' table. And it's for those who put their faith and hope in him that, that we don't just handle our suffering on our own. And if you're here this morning and, and maybe you say, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I really want to put my hope in him yet. I, I totally understand that if you don't. But I would ask you to remain in your seat or come forward and receive prayer and continue to contemplate these things. Don't come forward and take this without integrity. Come forward knowing that you're either wanting to take it because all you can do is trust in him and his flesh and blood and not your own. Because it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you, take, eat, all of you, do so in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured it out. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, that new relationship. Shed for your sins. Drink of it, all of you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he will come again. Take a moment. Go before him. Just confess your heart. Take a moment of of brief silence. Prepare yourself to come to this table and eat and be reminded of the hope that you have in him. Let's bow our heads.